Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Solutions journalism is really rigorous, evidence-based reporting on responses to social problems. I like to describe it to reporters as investigative journalism that focuses more on the solution than the problem, because it does. Solutions journalism is not for the faint of heart, according to today's podcast guest. It's rigorous investigative journalism dedicated to finding solutions in the community you cover. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Karen Magnuson is a project director for the Solutions Journalism Network. She'll be marking her first year anniversary at the network on April 1st. She's here to talk about how Solutions Journalism can open a new world of possibilities for journalists in newsrooms, as well as the communities they serve. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Uh, Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate you having me. Well, thank you for coming back. We actually had a little mishap a week or so ago in our recording and and so now we're going to do it again and this one's even going to be so much better um (laughs) i'm 100 percent confident of that but first of all tell me a little about your journalist journey how did you get interested in journalism wow you know it dates back to high school when i was working for the the high school newspaper and i decided that i wanted to pursue journalism for a living i really loved talking to people and i really loved writing and i thought such a deal. I could do both and get paid for it. Why not? And then, of course, All the President's Men came out, the movie that boomers love. And of course, I'm dating myself now. But that really inspired me to want to change the world through investigative reporting. So I went off to college, a small liberal arts college called Alma College in Alma, Michigan. And I studied journalism as a program of emphasis. And I got a job right out of college at a small newspaper in Sturgis, Michigan. Then I decided to join United Press International, and I worked for UPI for about seven years in half a dozen different places around the United States. Landed in California, working for the Los Angeles Daily News and a few other newspapers out that way. Then I was managing editor of the Wichita Eagle, and then I decided to come back east and be the managing editor and then editor of the Democrat and Chronicle in Rochester, New York. I had a a very long career with Gannett, really loved working for that company, but decided to take an early retirement and look into joining the nonprofit world. And so I landed at the Solutions Journalism Network, where I am project director for New York and Michigan. So if being inspired by All the President's Men dates you, it also dates me. Um, <laughs> I too saw that in high school and wanted to become a journalist because of it and took the same, pretty much the same path you did, you know, through high school, you know, high school editor, you know, on and studying journalism and, and pursuing a, a career in it. So I don't think we're alone. I've been wondering what the younger generation is inspired by. I imagine Spotlight is something that inspires them. Oh, yeah. Uh, because that's a, that's a pretty great movie. But, you know, not even just movies. I think there's a lot of I think we're seeing a lot of good journalists out there doing good work, trying to sort of combat disinformation, trying to, you know, tackle some of the big issues that are going on in our industry right now. So there's still a lot of people out there doing great work, being inspirational. So what got you into, in, interested in solutions journalism? Well, actually, I learned about solutions journalism when I was editor of the Democrat and Chronicle, and I invited some folks from SJN to come in and conduct some workshops 
for my newsroom because we were very interested in applying a solutions lens to our education reporting. For many years, we had just kept on reporting about the problems with our city schools and nothing was really happening in terms of improving the situation. And so we wanted to learn about how to apply solutions journalism to the topics that we were covering and see if we couldn't improve the quality of life in our community. So solutions journalism is really rigorous evidence-based reporting on responses to social problems. And I like to describe it to reporters as investigative journalism that focuses more on the solution than the problem, because it does. And it's not journalism for the faint of heart. It is journalism that is very rigorous, like prosecuting a story just as you would if you were conducting an investigation of a problem, but you're looking at a solution to see whether or not it's something that has evidence that actually backs up its progress in being able to help solve the problem and also its limitations so that you're looking at whether or not this particular solution or potential solution could be replicable. You know, how successful were you in Rochester with this project that you had done for education? I think that it was, um, from my perspective, just sticking our toe in the water. We applied the solutions journalism lens to a couple of the stories that we were doing in a series. Now that I am older and wiser and more experienced in the world of solutions journalism, I see that you really need to be consistent about the application to have a real impact. You can't just do a one-off, you know, and think that you're going to change the world. It is the kind of approach that can really transform a newsroom, but also build trust in the community. If your readers and users and viewers see that you are consistently trying to help solve problems rather than just unearthing what's wrong with the world. I imagine you, you probably got some feedback on your project. Yes. And people liked it and wanted more, but it was around that time also where I decided to take my early retirement. <laughs> so I'm happy to say that my successor, Mike Killian, who's an awesome editor at the Democrat and Chronicle, is very involved in continuing solutions journalism. And as a matter of fact, the Democrat and Chronicle is part of a media collaborative that I helped direct as a project director for the Solutions Journalism Network. So they are carrying on the tradition um, with a different topic. So what is your role then at the network? Who are you working with and what initiatives are you putting your energies toward? Well, I am in charge of two media collaboratives that involve newspapers and TV stations and radio and also some digital startups in Western New York, and then a separate one in Southeast Michigan that we are now bringing together into one huge collaborative called the New York and Michigan Solutions Journalism Collaborative. And actually our first meeting as an interstate collaborative is this week, where we're bringing together a total of 26 news outlets and five community partners. And all of these folks are going to work together to leverage their respective talents raise awareness about the topic that we're covering, and then also, very importantly, develop relationships where they can rely on each other and strengthen the media ecosystem for the future. And the topic that we're covering is also very unique. It's a topic that has been undercovered, and that is challenges facing caregivers of older adults. We've launched a series called Invisible Army, Caregivers on the Front Lines, 
because caregivers of older adults especially are certainly on the front lines right now in the midst of a pandemic. And a lot of the issues that we looked at prior to the pandemic have been exacerbated by COVID-19. And so the topic has really taken on a real sense of urgency in addition to being critical because of the growing population of older adults. I think you said you have 26 different newsrooms involved in this? Yes. What is the the collective going to be able to do to sort of help the individual outlets? Because everybody brings a different strength to the party, they're able to leverage each other's assets. For example, one news outlet might have some extraordinary expertise in data analysis and building databases. That tends to be more of a strength of newsrooms and newspapers as opposed to TV, for example, and radio. So you might be able to leverage, you know, a database desk at one of the newspapers. At TV, like they're the king of visuals, right? And so TV can really help narrow in on a slice of the issue that is going to be visually appealing and perhaps more engaging as a result, especially when you're taking a look at what people like to look at online. And then, you know, radio, what's going to be really appealing to the ear? And how can we look at stories from the perspective of a listener? If you're able to then tell that story on all these different platforms, and you're able to leverage all of the various audiences, you're going to reach many more people in many more ways and raise awareness of this issue. As I said, it's, a, it's an undercovered issue that really needs more coverage, particularly from a solutions perspective. So, you know, obviously by the name Solutions Journalism, the idea is that you're covering something that's going to have some sort of public benefit. You know, obviously covering an underreported story is, is a benefit, but are there any particular quote-unquote solutions that you're looking for, or is it something that's going to reveal itself as you sort of dig into each of the communities? say both. So there are two different areas of caregivers that we're looking at. One is paid caregivers, which are much easier to identify because they're people who are already working. They have jobs as caregivers in places like nursing homes and agencies that provide healthcare workers for people who need care at home and other places, for example. Their challenges are low pay, long hours, And also they can tend to be isolated and they also have had some significant issues, COVID, of course, during the pandemic. And then the larger group that we're looking at are family caregivers. And family caregivers are unpaid, of course. They they generally are people who had to step up to take care of mom and dad or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandpa. And they are trying their best to take care of them at home and face a whole host of challenges and don't even understand what support services exist. And that's partly due to the fact that many family caregivers don't even identify, self-identify as caregivers. They just see it as a, a cultural benefit to be able to keep the family together and step up. You know, mom and dad used to take care of me, so now I'm gonna take care of mom and dad kind of a thing. And so they're, they're more elusive to us. They're harder to find, but they're the larger group that really needs help. And so we're working very hard to consult with experts and others who can tell us how best to reach them to make sure that the people who are most affected 
are able to see the journalism and hopefully benefit from it. Okay, obviously, because you know this is investigative journalism, and and you're you know, writing about something that, that's been undercovered. Like the number one thing that you you're hoping to accomplish, I, I assume, in this is that you want to inform people, that make them aware of this issue. Have you identified any other? solutions at this point? Or is it the thought as you're investigating it, you may be able to find some, I don't know, government programs, uh, social care programs, nonprofits that would be able to be involved in this, that would be able to do the solutions? Yes, yes. Well, we're, we're in our infancy as a collaborative, but we have published several stories to start off the series. So there are a wide range of examples. The Buffalo News, for example, did a watchdog investigation where they were able to obtain data from the state to look at how many nursing homes had issues of COVID, how many incidents of COVID-19. And then when you look at the data, see, well, which nursing homes seem to do better? And are there nursing homes that had zero incidents of COVID-19? And if so, then what are those nursing homes doing that are different? And should those practices then be looked at for other nursing homes to be able to improve the overall rate of infection? And so that is an investigative story where you're looking for what we call a positive deviant. You're looking at who is doing it better. So that story came out. It was actually a partnership between the Buffalo News and WGRZ-TV based in Buffalo and BC affiliate there. They both published a story and then cross-promoted, and that story, as a result, reached everybody in the audience for both the Buffalo News and WGRZ-TV. And then other members of the collaborative are able to pick up that story and publish it themselves as well. This is where there's no competition, where the Buffalo News and WGRZ-TV, for example, would be competing on other breaking news stories and other stories that they're investigating. In the collaborative, we all agree that when we're working together on these stories about caregivers, everybody benefits. There are no paywalls on these stories. These stories lift all boats. Beyond just sort of uh, telling this story, what are, what are the benefits to the community when, when they have the, you have this sort of hyper-focus on a particular issue? Mm-hmm. Let me provide with uh, you with another example. And so There is a story that was recently done by Bridge Magazine in partnership with the Detroit News about paid caregivers and some of the challenges that they face, which I just recently discussed. And they located a program in New York City that was testing a variety of things in terms of benefits for caregivers and then also more extensive training to help with professional development. And they found, based on that program, that they were able to improve retention, which is a serious issue with paid healthcare workers in that category. So theoretically, if somebody in Western New York or in Southeast Michigan, a local program saw that story and thought, well, I wonder if we could do that here. Can that be replicated here? Our story talks about the possibilities of replication and also the limitations of replication. So we're hoping that we inspire an individual or an organization or a lawmaker or someone that wields power or interest in some way, shape or form, that somebody will take the idea and run with it. So a lot of our listeners are, are journalists. They're, they're people who work in newsrooms who may not be doing solutions, journalism type projects, they might be curious how to institute something like that. You know, what would you say to somebody who is in a newsroom and wants to do something like this, but 
you know, maybe not doesn't know how to start the ball rolling. Oh, that's great. That's where we come in because the Solutions Journalism Network, you know, it trains and connects journalists to cover what's often missing in today's news, you know, just how people are responding to problems. And so they can go to solutionsjournalism.org. We have a website that has a ton of information about what kind of workshops are already scheduled. There's also a learning hub where you can go and go through some self-paced courses and teach yourself. There's a solution story tracker where there are more than 10,000 solutions journalism stories that you can take a look at by category, by news organization, by geography. And so if you're working on a particular story, you have a topic that you want to put in the story tracker and see what comes up, you'll get a chance to see how other journalists have tackled that particular topic with a solutions journalism lens. So our mission at SJN is to spread the practice. So I appreciate you allowing me to share that because if people are interested, that's all they have to do is go to solutionsjournalism.org. To do a, a solutions journalism project in a newsroom, is it something that would require greater you know, resources or is it just more of a different sort of focus of your energies? Oh, it's the latter. So we know that time management can be a challenge, especially these days. And so really it's, it's about taking a story that you would want to otherwise you'd want to do anyway and applying a solutions journalism lens to it. And it can be a big project. Some solutions journalism stories are big projects, but many of them are just daily stories or stories that you can certainly do in a day because it's just a topic that you want to take a look at from a solutions perspective rather than just reporting on the problem. It's taking that extra step. Let me go back to something you, you said a, a while ago when you were talking about the project that you're currently working on in Michigan in Western New York. You said you had partners involved. Who are these partners, the community partners that you're involved with? Oh, sure. Universities make great community partners. So in Southeast Michigan, we have folks from Michigan State, Wayne State, and Front Edge Publishing, a book publisher that has published books on caregiving. In Western New York, we have the Rochester Institute of Technology and also a professor at a small liberal arts college, St. John Fisher College, based in Rochester. And they're able to help us on a variety of different fronts. Wayne State and Michigan State also, of course, have robust journalism programs. And at the Rochester Institute of Technology, we were able to establish a co-op with a student who is helping us build our website. And so that student is being paid through the Democrat and Chronicle and the collaboratives and Solutions Journalism Network through the collaborative is reimbursing the Democrat and Chronicle. And we'll have a website that'll be ready to launch in May. Cool. So we've had other people uh, talking about solutions journalism. And, and one of the things I always found interesting was how they involved uh, the community and community organizations, sometimes even down on the street level, you know, to try to... Uh, sort of crack a problem or, or identify an issue, you know, can you sort of talk about that and, you know, is maybe a sort of a different approach for people engaged in the community? Absolutely. One of the members of the Southeast Michigan group is Urban Aging News. It's this small startup, one woman band driven by this force of nature who is named Patricia Rencher. She has a ton of experience in the aging world. She used to work at the gerontology department at Wayne State. 
And she was a former caregiver who decided that there needed to be a, a niche publication for older adults in urban Detroit. And so in 2015, she launched one. <laughs> and she is a member of our collaborative and has a equal voice in everything we do. As a matter of fact, I would say she has a leading voice in everything we do because she has a lot of context. She has a lot of knowledge and all of the other newspapers include, including editors from places like the Detroit Free Press, listen intently to what she has to say. And she is co-chair of our engagement committee. And she and Marty Fishoff from uh, DPTV have coordinated several panels of experts and caregivers to advise the collaborative on a variety of topics about what is the perspective, what is their perspective from caregivers on the ground. So we're not just relying on state research or national research. We're talking to people on the ground about how these issues are viewed from the people who are most affected in the communities that this collaborative serves. And it's a critical, essential part of what we do because when you identify a problem, like who gets to say what the problem is, right? The people who are most affected should say what the problem is. And so we're working extra hard to make sure that we hear those voices on the front end of our reporting and then continue that dialogue and get feedback from people who are most affected as we report those issues. I like this uh, approach for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, collaborating newsrooms. You know, I think that's always a good thing, being able to bring the variety of resources and perspectives. I mean, obviously, there are going to be some people are going to have, you know, certain contacts and uh, certain perspectives of the, the communities they're covering. But involving other reporters, involving specialized reporters like the one you mentioned, I mean, that just it just strengthens the reporting of each of the newsrooms. And they learn, they learn from each other. They really do. They learn from each other and the journalism gets better. And then, you know, when you develop relationships like that, then when something, when a big story breaks and they need each other's help, those relationships have already been established. And so it really does strengthen the media ecosystem in the end, because the thought is that this collaboration will continue for many years to come. And after they tackle caregiving for a couple of years, they'll want to move on to another topic that they believe is undercovered and needs a solutions lens. People might wonder why we picked the topic of caregiving. And I did say that it was undercovered, but there's an organization that brought the need to our attention, a foundation called the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation, went to the Solutions Journalism Network saying, there is this issue, and we're wondering whether or not it's something that the Solutions Journalism Network would be interested in looking into. And so they, the Solutions Journalism Network said, well, this is interesting. Let's put together a, a pilot program and check it out. So I was hired as a part-time contractor for six months to do research on the problems that caregivers face, the potential solutions that are out there to vet, and then tested the interest or gauge the interest of media outlets in um, both regions to see whether or not they'd be interested in covering this issue. And we did a pilot program with the Democrat and Chronicle to produce three stories to test it out and see what it felt like and looked like. We then submitted a report to the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation and said, 
here's what we found. What do you think? And they said, well, we think we're going to provide funding for two years so you can launch this. <laughs> and so I was hired full-time in April of last year. And uh, we launched the first collaborative in Western New York in May, and then followed up with launching a collaborative in Southeast Michigan in September. And now here in March, we're bringing the two together for one big interstate collaborative. It'll be the first of its kind in the Solutions Journalism Network. There hasn't been an interstate collaborative before. Normally, the collaboratives are limited geographically to a city or a state. So what was the attraction of, of linking these two regions? Well, actually, the attraction is really born also from the interest of the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation. Ralph C. Wilson, uh, who uh, is no longer with us, but is a former owner of the Buffalo Bills, is from Detroit. And his foundation is focused on some key issues, including caregiving, to help caregivers in Western New York and Southeast Michigan. So fortunately for me, I live in Rochester, which is in Western New York, and I grew up in Detroit. And so I'm very familiar with Southeast Michigan as well. So this was a perfect, it was kind of like the sun and the stars and the moon all aligning for partnerships that could be relatively easily formed based on the fact that I was familiar with both areas and I knew people in the industry from both cities. So before we um, started planning this interview, I, I was looking online and I saw that the Solutions Journalism Network is involved in the HSI Solutions Journalism Educator Academy. Can you sort of tell me about what that is? Yes. So the Solutions Journalism Network is really busy also working with journalism educators across the country. And this is a new program, the HSI Solutions Journalism Educator Academy, that is taking place in April. It's a two-day intensive training, virtually, of course, due to the pandemic. And it's dedicated to serving Hispanic and Latino students in the United States by teaching solutions journalism in the classroom and how to incorporate it into student newsrooms at the collegiate level. It's modeled after some other really successful programs. There's a HBCU Solutions Journalism Educator Academy and also a University of Oregon's Solutions Journalism Educators Academy. They've been, both been very successful. And so this is the next step. Well, I think, you know, the work that you're doing, the collaborations that you're, you're helping to facilitate, I think Woodward and Bernstein would be proud. Thank you. <laughs> the work that you're doing. <laughs> it's not quite exactly the same thing, but it's still good journalism and it's still something that's serving the public. Karen, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism, 
Nicola Grisco produced this episode, Amber Healy wrote our web content, Nick Capre wrote our theme music, Emilio Brust helped with our booking, Steph Thomas is our social media manager, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.